0: Good morning, everyone. I would love to be so thin that I would need to wear a vest, a down vest in this room right now, uh, just to keep warm. I would, uh, that's, I'm claiming that body in the new heaven and new earth. Uh, I want to uh, read a very uh, easy verse and a very difficult verse. Jesus is saying this. He said, you heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. I love the last phrase, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. We have friends that... uh, in, back in Calgary that for years and years we played cards with, a, with them. And um, our children were probably under the age of 10. Mike, my oldest, our oldest was under 10 years old. And then, uh, then they moved. They moved to Kelowna. They came here. Uh, probably 10 or 11 years later, we moved here. No, maybe even more than that. Because I think Mike was about 22 at the time. And my son was working at Joey's, and, and he didn't look anything. Like when he was 10 years old, he was little and, and little, and, and, and now he's enormous, okay? He's huge and hairy. Uh, I think we were, if, had I known he was going to be that hairy, we would have called him Esau. Um, he combs the hair on his arms in the morning when he gets ready. And so he's a monster. And um, he was working at Joey's and uh, serving people. And he comes up to this table and he, you know, he brings the menus and he takes their drink order. And the, the lady won't stop looking at his hands. She hasn't even looked at his face yet. She's staring at his hands and she said, are you related to Ed Weiss? And he goes, that's my dad. And She goes, Michael? And he was like, ah. you see, his hands gave him away. He does. He has my hands. And in this verse, what, what, what Jesus is trying to say, you want to look like your dad, then love your enemy. If you want to look like your dad, then love your enemy. He's, he's saying it's not good enough to love your friends. That's too easy. The most corrupt people on the planet, Putin, he likes the people that like him. He said, that's not good enough. I'm calling you to love those who don't even like you. I'm calling you to love people that actually hurt you. Civility and tolerance are not high enough standards. Those are not the standards of the kingdom of God. There's a higher standard. And you are created in the image of God. He put his own spirit inside of you that when you love your enemies, you look just like him. You look just like your dad. Loving your enemies... It's as much about protecting your own heart as it is demonstrating the Father's love for people in your life. So today I want to do two things. I want to actually take a few minutes and look at what the enemy looks like. What is, what is the enemy that you're supposed to love look like? And then give you two simple and practical things that you can do to step towards loving your enemy. I think so often we think we should do it in one big leap. You know, somebody hurts you and you're you know you're supposed to go give them a kiss. Uh, I, I think it happens in small steps, and I'm going to give you two of those small steps. Arthur Brooks um, tells a story of a talk that he did at a, um, at, a, at a conservative political rally in the United States. He was the only candidate, the only speaker at the convention that wasn't running for president. There were 700 uh, conservative activists in the crowd. And and all of these other speakers who are running, trying to get elected are, are just like throwing meat to hyenas. They're saying, you know what? You're right. The Democrats are wrong. You're right. The Democrats are evil and the crowd goes crazy every time. And when Arthur Brooks gets up to speak, in the middle of his talk, he does something that was really unexpected. He stops for a second. He said, you know all those people that aren't here? And, and, and the reason they're not here is because they don't agree with you politically. Those people? Well, they're not idiots. And they're not evil. They're Americans, just like you. The only difference is they disagree with you. And in that moment, there was no applause line. You could have heard a pin drop. In fact, the, the silence was awkward until some ladies jumped to the feet and said, they are idiots and I think they're evil. And then the place went crazy and they applauded. You see, people don't know what to do with the tension. But I think that what Arthur Brooks did demonstrated incredible moral character. He defended people who were not in the room to the people that were in the room. And in my opinion, that's the mark of love. I'm gonna make a statement here and, the, and, 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 and I'm gonna to suggest to you that marital discord is the metaphor for all human interactions. If you, you, you look at what destroys and sabotages a marriage, you can learn a lot about all of the human interactions in your life. John Gottman is a marriage counselor, and a social psychologist. He has an institution in Seattle, Washington. He's considered a a world of, one of the world's foremost authorities on marriage counseling. And he has identified a number of predictors for people who are married, a number of predictors for them to separate and divorce. In fact, he he says that he can meet with a couple and do one session with them and, and then um, with about 94% accuracy tell you it, that if they'll be divorced in the next three years. And the number one predictor, I, I, when I was reading this, I'm thinking, it's got to be anger. It's got to be anger. Who can live with an angry person? But it is isn't an anger. And it is isn't infidelity. The number one predictor of a couple who are not going to make it from, in his opinion, is contempt. It's contempt. He says, when I see it in the, the, the eye-rolling, I see it in the sarcasm, I hear it in the sarcasm, in the, the dismissiveness and demeaning language. Contempt can be defined as the unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of another person. I love that. It means the faultless conviction of the worthlessness of another person. And any time there's a hint of that that makes room into a marriage, it begins to destroy a marriage. And when that enters into a culture, it begins to destroy the culture. When it enters into the human race, it divides and destroys the human race. And so what if the number one way to identify somebody who is your enemy is contempt. The person that looks down to you, talks down to you, rolls their eyes, dismisses you, doesn't take you seriously. So I thought before talking about how to love the enemy, I thought it might be helpful to talk about, to talk about how to stop being the enemy. How do we stop the habit of dismissing anyone who doesn't think or look or smell like we do? How do we do that? How dismissive are you when, when people disagree with you? Do you just write them off? How much contempt do you have for people who don't live like you or believe like you? And we treat someone in that way, we have become their enemy. COVID has taken so much out of us as a people. Because if you're an anti-vaxxer or a vaxxer, how, how, how many of you have to begin to look at other people because of a decision that they made and decided that they're evil? You don't know them. You don't even know why they made the decision. And yet you've decided that they're, they're evil. When someone shows contempt for you or hurts you or offends you, we'll call that uh, stimulus. And then when you hurt them back, we're going to call that response. And there's age-old traditions that teach, that teach us to create as much space between res, stimulus and response as you possibly can. As much time as you possibly can. So you're not reacting. In, it's not knee-jerk. You know, someone chirps off at you on, online. And, and if, if you don't have a discipline in the area of the, uh, the stimulus response time, you're just going to chirp off back at them and absolutely nothing is accomplished in that the first step towards stopping the habit of content contempt is growing space between stimulus and response i know it sounds so simple but it's simply about breathing for just taking some breaths taking 5 minutes 10 minutes before your response, I promise you, I can almost guarantee you the response will sound different. It will sound softer. The response will sound more informed. We know this, but we don't. don't it's, we're not in the habit of it, and so this is my first step: expanding your stimulus-response space is the most loving thing you can do. That's where it starts, right there. The second thing is even harder. To pl- practically love somebody is to learn how to respond with a measure of warmth. I've had my feet taken out more than once by people. I've had people hurt me, offend me, just like you, I'm just like you. And I figured out a way for me to be the best version of me in, the resp- in response to conflict. And the way I do that is that I will respond to somebody, not in person, I'll take a step back. I have to take a step back and say, listen, I'll get back to you on that, just give me a little bit of time. And I will almost always then go and type out my response. And my first first draft is usually edgy, it's cutting, it's defensive, and then I just leave it for a day. I pray about it. I think about it. And then I go to my second draft. And the second draft, the the whole purpose of the second draft is not to pull out my truth or my point, but to take out the edge. And so idiot and stupido and all those words get pulled out of it with some other really colorful ones that we can't talk about in church. Um, And then I... I I add, my third draft and my final draft is always, I add a pinch of warmth. I always make it my commitment. I want this to come off with some level of warmth in it. And I'm telling you, I've done this again and again and again. And I can honestly say that when I finished, I, 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 you know, you know, when you really, when you, you ream somebody out, they hurt you and you, you. You call them, you know, the spawn of Satan and on and on and on and on and on, you know. I don't think anybody ever goes back after, after saying that and thinking, you know, I should have given them one more. We always think I should have maybe just been a little kinder. And I honestly, I go back and I, maybe I should have changed some things, but I've learned that warmth shifts the entire conversation. Just an ounce of warmth. The third thing. Oh, by the way, it doesn't take any courage to hurl insults at the person that's hurled them at you. But it is a sign of courage and love when you can respond to your enemy with truth and grace because that is what God wired us for. That's when you look like your dad. And the third way of loving your enemy is by forgiving them. By forgiving them. Once again, just like loving your enemy, forgiveness is as much about protecting your own heart as it is demonstrate what the Father is doing in the situation. Because resentment is like a glass of poison that a person drinks, then they sit down and they wait for their enemy to die, but the enemy never dies. And the truth is you can hold on to your offenses. You you have the agency to do that because you think that your resentment is what they deserve, but you know what the truth of the matter is? You've been off their radar for weeks. They're not even thinking about you, and you cannot get them out of your head. You can hold on to offenses, or you can decide in advance to throw off the the barbs that will continue to hurt you over and over and over again. Blessed is the person, I read this somewhere, that has a system that irrigates impurities out of the heart. And the way we irrigate our souls is by choosing to forgive. Forgiveness doesn't change the past, but it does enlarge the future. I love the story of Joseph. And I love the story of how, um, I think he's a really good example of a heart that is well irrigated. You know the story, but why did God bless Joseph above his brothers? What set him apart? Why did, why did God favor him above his brothers? He's one kid among 12. He's got 11 siblings, and, 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 and yet God chose him out of the whole family to bless him. And it wasn't because he was the oldest, because you could naturally, the birthright blessing would go to the oldest, but Joseph wasn't the oldest. God sees something in him that sets him apart. God sees something in Joseph that releases an extra measure of God's blessing in him and through him. Is it possible that it's how Joseph kept his own heart that got God's attention? I mean, let's be honest. A spoiled kid is a spoiled kid, okay? And Joseph was favored from the time he came out of the womb. And his father was not shy about the fact that Joseph was his favorite. And I'm thinking that he must have been annoying. He must have been an absolute brat because kids, when you're, when, when you're immature, you do not know how to steward favor. When you're mature, you know how to steward favor. When you're a kid, you show off. You strut it. When you're a kid, you use that favor against your brothers. And the Bible tells us that they, uh, they, 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 they he drove them crazy. They hated him. They had absolute contempt for him. And they wanted to kill him. And the opportunity presented itself, itself, and so they sold him like he's nothing. They just sold him. And somehow, Joseph learned how to let it go. I don't know how he did it. We know it took a long time. We know it took over a decade. But he figured out how to let it go. And you, I'm telling you what, if you, you live a lifetime, eventually, if you're intentional about it, you will learn how to let it go. If you're not intentional about it, you'll just carry it to your grave. But he learned how to let it go. And because he let it go, he came to see God in his circumstances. He came to see that God used even his brother's hatred to get him to Egypt. That's maturity. Joseph saw the God, what was he, what God was going to do, and Joseph leaned into it, and God made him a great deliverer, a great man of the day. God blesses people he can trust. Joseph could have used all of his power against his brothers when they came to buy grain, but he didn't do it. Think about this. Um, spiritual blindness comes from a bitter heart. And maybe that's why Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God you walk around with a, a, a bitter heart towards people, don't expect to have a tremendous amount of spiritual intuition. Don't expect to have a clear eye to see what God is doing in your life because bitterness blocks all of that. Peter asked Jesus, he said, um, how many times should I forgive somebody that that, that offends me? And... Um, Now, Peter's showing off here. He says, what do you think, seven? Seven's a good number. Seven times? Because the rabbinical teaching of the day said, you you only had to forgive somebody three times. Three times. And, 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 And Peter's going, I'll double that and add some. And he said, how about seven, Lord? To which Jesus said, no, how about 70 times seven? See, forgiving somebody three times, in my opinion is a stretch for my fallen nature. Three times? Because once is a, an event. Twice, we're getting into a pattern here. Three times? A oh, well-entrenched pattern. You're going to keep doing this to me? You're out. Seven times is unreasonable, and 490 times is absurd. But what Jesus is talking about He's not talking about what is natural and prudent or practical. He's talking about what children of God look like when the love of God, when the kingdom of God have taken hold of them. He's giving us an incredible picture here. And so the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to release the nature of God in us until we look like our heavenly father. He's demonstrating that forgiving is holy and right to the nature of God that is put inside of you. I'm going to invite the band to come on up. As we uh, get time to prepare our hearts for communion that we're going to take in a minute here. I wonder if we can stop for a moment here for just a time of honest reflection Whose enemy are you? Whose enemy are you? Who do you treat with a measure of contempt? To whom are you dismissive? Who do you roll your eyes at? By the way, teenagers are tough, but when parents teach their treat their teenagers with contempt, it goes bad. Always it goes bad. And I know sometimes they are tough to believe in. And sometimes they're unbelievable altogether. But this is where the enemy gets in and he begins to divide our families. Contempt to our teenagers. Who do you roll your eyes at? Who do you have contempt for? And who do you need to give more stimulus response time to, more space before you respond to them, more space before you answer their question, more space before you answer their accusation? And secondly, can you think of somebody that you really need to forgive? Somebody you really need to write an email to, somebody you really need to phone, somebody you need to do business with. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you give us a new heart. We pray that you put a new spirit within us. Father, forgive us for our hard heartedness. Give us tenderness, Jesus. Forgive us, Father, when we make, when we have made people feel small, simply out of our own insecurity. Father, we forgive those who've hurt us. And Lord, I pray today that we will look more like you more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.